Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Hey, just a heads up before we get started, we are talking about covering war today, so this conversation includes graphic discussions about violence. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And today we are talking about the challenge of covering the conflict in real time between Israel and Hamas. And with us to walk us through that is Douglas Gell, the international editor of the Washington Post. Doug, thanks for making time. I know it's busy. Glad to be with you. This is a complicated and fast-moving event, so I really am um, grateful that you're able to take time to talk with us. I also want to tell our listeners we're recording this on Wednesday morning, October 18th. It's possible that by the time you hear this, the facts or our understanding of the facts have shifted. But can we just start talking about the logistical challenges of, of covering the conflict? How many folks does the, the Post have covering this today as we're speaking? Well, this really is an operation in which we've mobilized the entire newsroom. Uh, we have... Uh, altogether, um, dozens of people covering the conflict. We have about 12 or 13 people on the ground in Israel. We have more in neighboring countries, Lebanon and Egypt. We have teams in Seoul and London who focus on breaking news coverage around the clock. And we have many people in Washington, including our extraordinary visual forensics team that helps to authenticate the uh, flood of images and video pouring in as people uh, present this conflict. As we're speaking this morning, there's enormous interest on the, the explosion at the Al-Ali Hospital in Gaza City. That's an event in which um, we still don't know what happened. I don't think uh, anyone can say with certainty what happened. Can we talk about the way the Post has covered that event, how your understanding of the event has changed, and how you try to reflect that in your coverage? I'm really proud of the way we've covered this event, which really uh, shows the rigor and care we strive to bring to every aspect of this conflict. We're aware of what's at stake, and it's vital that we report what we know and what we don't know. What we knew yesterday afternoon, moments after the uh, blast, was that Palestinian officials said hundreds of people had died in an explosion at the hospital. Uh, they also asserted that Israel was responsible for the attack. We were very careful in what we reported um, in that we alerted the claim from Palestinian officials that hundreds were dead, and that clearly proved to be true. We were careful not to give that prominence to what at the time and what remained were unverified assertions about responsibility. We've been careful in the hours since to include the claims and counterclaims on each side, the evidence that each has begun to present, the claims that President Biden has now offered, but we're making clear at every step, again, what it is that we know and what it is that we don't know. And we've seen in the immediate reaction to this event um, how unverified information can ignite protests, raise the threat of a wider war. We're aware of what's at stake, and we have been very, very careful in sticking to the facts. There's enormous criticism um, from all corners of the world about the way, not the Post, but media in general has covered this. A lot of this depends on, on your point of view of, on the conflict. Um, since so much of it is dependent on whether a, uh, an Israeli official said something or a Hamas or a Gaza official said something and you're unable to verify it, 
how frustrating is it to to not be able to sort of say this is the definitive truth about an event that just happened? I think all of us who've covered conflicts over the years recognize that it's uh, um, rare ever to have that definitive truth moments after an event happens. The first reports are invariably inaccurate, and we need to remind ourselves in every conflict that uh, that that knowing with certainty um, takes takes time. Um, it's particularly difficult in this case, given the passions on both sides, the often opposite viewpoints that each side brings to the conflict and the uh, scrutiny that everyone brings to our coverage. But that simply raises the um, raises the stakes here. We do have uh, um, some of the power with our own reporting beyond what we witness on the ground um, of using uh, tools to verify videos, uh, to analyze videos and other information that can be gathered um, in a way that that sort of multiplies our reporting power. And our visual forensics team has been hard at work in the last 18 hours in looking at images of the blast and talking with experts in trying to bring our own authority to what really happened here. We're not at the point where we can give a definitive answer. We'll see what emerges today from what's presented by the US, the Palestinians, the Israelis, but we also are deep into undertaking our own reporting on what the verified video shows. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the the verified video. You've got a story byline, uh, dateline this morning from a refugee camp in, in Gaza. And there's a line that says, video verified by the Washington Post captures the first sounds of an explosion, a whirring through the air, and then a blast. The camera pans to show fire and orange plumes of smoke. Can you tell us where that video came from and, and how you verify it, what verification means in this context? This is not an area where I bring enough expertise to give you the kind of conclusive answer that you'd like. What, what I can say is that we have a large and dedicated team devoted to visual forensics um, that use tools to look at metadata, look at other information to be confident that video was, uh, was shot uh, when and where it claim to have been shot. We recognize that there's a lot of disinformation out there. There are a lot of AI-generated videos. There's a lot of noise. Uh, we're able, we're using these tools to filter out a lot of the bad information and focus on the good. Are you able to um, also take video you find on, on Twitter or TikTok, other platforms, and, and, and sort of sort through that? Is, is some of that useful? Um, as you're reporting this out? It absolutely is. I mean, we're aware that we can't be everywhere in the world. We're aware that particularly at this moment, our limited access to Gaza presents that kind of eyewitness reporting, which has been the traditional way that, that those of us in this business have, have reported events. The power of social media, um, but also the curse, is that it uh, opens up the aperture to collect all kinds of information, eyewitness uh, videos shot by people who actually were on the ground in the, in the right place. That's an enormously valuable tool. Where it has peril is that um, there is bad information out there. There's information that is presented in one way, which actually uh, isn't backed up by the facts. So that is certainly the kind of images that our team is focusing on. Information shot by others and efforts then to verify its accuracy. That, that story I mentioned that does have a dateline from Gaza. Do you have uh, reporters or, or freelancers on the ground there? 
We do have a couple people who are on the ground there, a photographer and a, and a longtime contract reporter. The conditions for them and for others in Gaza are perilous and their ability to report is limited, uh, limited by the, the risk of, um, of, of being caught up in attacks, limited by uh, fuel, limited by uh, limits on communication. But we do have people on the ground in Gaza now. Were they in Gaza prior to the outbreak of the conflict? They were. No one's been able to get in or out of Gaza since this began on October 7th, and that's been a source of concern for our staff and their families uh, who want to seek uh, a safety. But we have uh, long held, had a, a contract reporter based in Gaza who's done Hazem Belusha, who's done extraordinary work for us, and we also work with freelance photographers there. Obviously, Gaza itself is enormously dangerous, but the entire region is dangerous. How, how do you guys talk to, to your staff and your contractors about risk in a time like this when it's, you know, everyone assumes some risk in the job, but obviously the, the danger, I assume, is, is greatly increased? Do you have real frank conversations about sort of what the risk is like and, and what the Post can and can't do to protect people and what assurances they can and can't give? Yeah, we absolutely do. We insist on, we remind everyone who sets off an assignment like this that we really do see their safety as paramount and that no story is worth risking their lives. And we take some really extraordinary measures to make sure that people who undertake these assignments are well prepared, that they're equipped with proper uh, protective equipment and safety gear, that they've been given adequate conflict zone training. We're constantly consulting with safety advisors who work in real time with us and our correspondents to make decisions about deployments and to remind them about precautions we need to take. There's no foolproof way of doing this. We've seen 17 journalists die in Gaza since this began, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. We've seen another one killed in a strike in Lebanon. It's, it's risky work, but we're conscious and our reporters are conscious that we want them to put their safety first. Do you ever determine that that uh, a particular area or, or an entire um, territory is just simply too dangerous to have on the ground reporting and say, we're, we're not going to risk someone's lives, we'd just rather go without? Absolutely. A absolutely. These are decisions we, we make in Ukraine um, and decisions we make in Israel and decisions we, we we make around the world. We have frank and upfront conversations with our correspondents about their willingness to undertake assignments, but also with our safety advisors. And ultimately, it's our decision as editors, but we need to balance risk and rewards. And there are absolutely times when we say uh, the potential reward is not worth the risk. We'll be back with The Washington Post's Doug Gell in a minute. First, a word from a sponsor. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. And we're back. Another balance I think a lot about is just, and it's always relevant for news reporting, but particularly here is, is speed and accuracy. And, and like we were talking about from the beginning, a lot of accuracy is something that I think is, we won't fully know how accurate a report was for hours, days, weeks, months. 
How many times do you end up saying we're not going to publish something because we can't verify it, even though other outlets or a government is saying something? Every day. Um, uh, every day, I would say, and certainly in a conflict like this, we've, we've, we've made those decisions multiple times a day. We have extraordinary journalists, not just on the ground in Israel and neighboring countries, but around the world, particularly our teams who are providing those kinds of live updating coverage on a 24-hour basis that we've really made hallmark of our reporting. Those reporters and editors with, with our guidance are important to look at um, at reports that come in and we encourage them to stop and pause and say again what do we know uh, what do we not know I'd say uh, you know there certainly have been occasions in the last seven days in which claims uh, for example of Hezbollah crossing into Israel were made and reported and we paused and didn't report that and proud that we didn't We've also treated with with real care uh, uh, some of the assertions that have been made without verification about it, about specific atrocities committed on Israeli victims by attackers. We there are claims uh, made every day. There have been multiple claims made in this crisis that we've decided not to report, and I've been glad that we have refrained. I was curious about that. Uh, the, I mean, it's now faded a little bit, but definitely over the last few days, there was a big a roiling debate about specific atrocities supposedly inflicted upon babies. And you hear a lot of debate about that. And But I think a lot of people who weren't following this very closely would say, we're pretty sure that babies were killed. Why does the manner in which they were killed matter? Why are we having debates about this? Can you explain to a interested but not deeply uh, informed news consumer why why those the, the specifics of those reports matter? We want to be absolutely specific in these kinds of cases about what we know and what we don't know, in part because of the emotive quality of these assertions. I, I think you and I can both say that when we hear uh, a phrase like decapitated babies, we respond in a different way emotionally than um, babies who were, uh, who were killed. That has particular resonance um, in the context of of Israeli assertions that what was happening here uh, was uh, akin to what an extremist group like ISIS has done in other parts of the world. So that has uh, has greater power and, and resonance. We're working to, to check every assertion here. I think in the days that have passed, it's become clear that um, certainly some of the Israeli victims of this horrific attacks were indeed mutilated and may well have been decapitated, but we have yet seen no evidence or confirmation that babies were decapitated. And we want to be very careful again about reporting what it is that we know and don't know. And a blind assertion made by someone, particularly an anonymous assertion, without that kind of proof is something we want to be careful about repeating because we're conscious of that power of those kinds of allegations. Are you folks having an ongoing discussion about sort of what objectivity means in a conflict like this and whether or not the Post or, or just American reporters, American news organizations in general have historical biases that you want to be aware of? 
I think what we're focusing on and what I'm focused on is providing the, the best and most reliable and accurate and trustworthy coverage of this conflict that we can. And we pride ourselves on, on doing so um, at the post in a way that is that is factual and, and, and not driven by bias. I do think in a polarized world, in a polarized conflict like this, the value that the coverage from a place like the Post brings is that it is um, is that it is fact-based. Um, I'll, be, I'll be candid, we, we haven't had a lot of deep discussions about the meaning of objectivity in the last 10 days. We've just been, at least at my level, I've been focused on deploying correspondence um, and ensuring that our coverage is both fast and accurate around the clock. Inevitably, you're going to get something wrong. I think it's just by the nature of, of real-time reporting. What happens when you get something wrong, both in terms of, of problem-solving the, the issue internally and then communicating that to the public? You're absolutely right that we get things wrong. We've gotten things wrong in the last, in, in the last 10 days. We're committed when we're doing so to not only correct the error, but to be transparent with our readers about the error that we made and, and what we're correcting, which we've done um, uh, in the in the few cases in which we've made mistakes. You know, because of the nature of journalism these days, it's extraordinarily labor-intensive to cover a story like this around the clock with live updating files. It does require drawing on people who haven't spent the last decades covering uh, Israel and Palestine. It's been incumbent on us, and we've done a good job of it, I think, to help bring people up to speed on potential pitfalls in terms of language and, and usage so that um, our coverage brings the, the rigor and adherence to standards that's really important to us at The Post. The labor you're talking about, the intensity of the work, it does not seem like this will be sustainable indefinitely. It's obviously not sustainable indefinitely. How do you think about sort of pacing your work, your work personally, the work of your team, the resource? The post has a lot of resources, but they're still not infinite. How do you think about the fact that this is likely to be a long conflict, that this is going to require a lot of work on everyone's end, and, and that perhaps it's not sustainable to do 24-hour coverage for days and weeks on end? Well, unfortunately, we've had a lot of experience in the last 26 months with uh, with what seemed, and even before, what seemed to be never-ending stories. Um, we had the coronavirus epidemic, and then in particular, um, since August 2021, we've had the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. We've had Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and now we've had this war between Israel and, and Hamas. And throughout those major stories, we've continued to cover the major stories on a 24-hour basis. We built breaking news teams in London and Seoul that launched in the summer of 2021, just in time for this intensive period of news. I don't mean to minimize the impact on our reporters and our, and our teams. We need to make sure people pace themselves, that they get enough rest, that we rotate people into conflict zones that we give them the breaks they need. But this is going to be a story that goes on. That's one that we believe it's our obligation to cover with this intensity and rigor and velocity that we've brought to it for the last 10 days. And on that note, I want to let you get back to your work. Doug Gell for The Washington Post, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Peter. Thanks again to Doug Gell from The Washington Post. Thanks again to Travis and Jelani and Julie Myers as well for putting this one together quickly, turning around quickly for you guys. Thanks to our sponsors and thanks to our listeners. This is Recode Media. We'll see you soon.